0: Hello and welcome to the Information Podcast. Today, we're sitting down with John Hall, CTO of Tradesy and Heartbeat. We're going to be talking about the open source software movement, women's fashion resale, and ambassador marketing. Stay tuned.
1: Uh, I want to start off by talking about your background and experience with open source software. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I've been using open source, you know for my entire career in 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 web, that is, mm-hmm. um, basically since ninety eight, I um, uh, started at bizRate, and there, you know we used an early version of MySQL and um, Linux. I think we were on Red Hat at the time. And I mean, pretty much now and then, in my opinion, there's really no other good options for, not only for a startup, but for you know uh, companies of almost any size. I truly believe that open source software is um, incredibly important and not to say that all um, you know closed software um, doesn't have its place because it, it definitely does especially you know things like Oracle or fantastic for, for some companies um, but really open source has really enabled um, a lot of the technological advances um, and product advances, I, I believe we've seen over the past, you know, 20, 25 years.
1: Now, go into that. I, I want to know specifically why you think that is. Is it because, you know, open source software tends to be better for one reason or another?
0: Yeah,
2: I mean, it, well, one, it's free, usually. It's not always, it doesn't, by definition, have to be free, but it is just because anybody's allowed to distribute it. So, it's kind of hard to charge for something that anybody can distribute. Sure. Um, but because it's open source, there are on, on any given piece of software, any, any component of Linux, say Linux basically is, is made up of um, hundreds of individual pieces of open source software. And each of those, pieces, each of those components of Linux has has really kind of evolved over, over a number of years into kind of incredibly stable forms, which couldn't happen at if it was done just by one company or one team. Um, It's really a true uh, evolution. I I really think it's very much akin to um, uh, evolution in nature. In that, you know, w- when you have hundreds, if not thousands of, of developers who don't even know each other working on software and kind of competing in a sense, at least in their own minds, um, with wanting to make the software better and more secure and faster um, and more, you know, more robust, more scalable, you're going to end up with the, with the best product in the end. And the amazing thing about that is it's it's also free.
1: Wow. That's really, <clears throat> it's really interesting that, uh, thinking about it from a term, you know, uh, from an evolutionary standpoint.
2: Yeah, that's, that's definitely um, how I see it.
1: Why doesn't enterprise software develop in that same way?
2: Because there aren't enough people in a company. And companies have, any company is going to have tight deadlines. And sure, developers that work on this stuff also, you know, on open source also have deadlines they're under, but in a company where you're, you're paid to create software, you're not going to keep going back to the same code again and again, and other developers probably aren't going to keep going back to the same component to improve it over time. And so really it's, it's the difference between creating something for profit versus Creating something that you really see as a utility for for everyone.
1: Hmm.
0: Interesting. It's it's interesting that you bring up the for-profit motive there, uh, because I find that the profit motive tends to be this you know really really strong driver for innovation, and we've seen lately a lot of for-profit companies that use open source as part of their strategy. So they're not right. actually mutually exclusive. No, not at all.
2: And I'm, trust me, I mean, I, I am all for <laughs> capitalism and all for you know, creating and selling software, but at the same time, open source is an incredibly important component of that. I kind of think of it as, as the backbone.
1: I mean that's a good that's a good segue into talking about the apparel retail market, you know. So so can you tell me a little bit about the apparel retail market?
0: Oh the resale market. Um, oh apparel
1: resale market. I'm I even wrote it that way and then I said retail. <laughs> apparel right. retail is something that I assume everybody just knows inherently is buying clothes.
2: Right, right. So in, in 2012, um, I co founded TradeZ okay. um, as a CTO. And um, at the time, there were really the, the, the market was just kind of being born, the resale market that is um, specifically for women's fashion. Um, and there was a company called uh, Poshmark at the time. I believe the Real Real was around at the time as well i know ThreadUp up started soon after that or possibly right around the same time as tradesy um but anyway i i got introduced to it by my my co-founder tracy denunzio she had um for about four years before that a, a site called recycled bride okay which was resale um for wedding stuff so basically, you know, used wedding dresses um, and any anything related to to weddings, and she had done really well with that site. You know, she was making a comfortable living, but it was just her and one you know customer service person working with her. Okay, and she and she kind of realized that that you know there's a much bigger opportunity in to go into women's fashion in general, um, and so you know, she, she brought me on board and, you know, we raised um, a seed round and we're off to the races um, basically. Um, and so with trade Z, you know, you know trade fo- still is focused on women's fashion in general, because that seems to be the category that really works well for, for, for resale and, um, and initially we weren't sure if we were just going to be competitors just to you know eBay because obviously eBay sells a lot of of you know women's clothes as well right uh but we realized that women don't like shopping on eBay it's not a shopping experience you know it's not that you know endorphin rush you get from finding some amazing looking handbag or or pair of shoes or whatever it is um and so we really wanted to make z look and feel like a, a retail experience you know like a nordstrom um uh, .com or you know one, one of those sites
1: oh interesting yeah. you know i i feel like you know yeah. when i think yeah. about apparel resale i think about salvation army
2: right right and you know i mean sure some some people definitely will shop there but um there's a much bigger market that's growing and mm. it's it's really exploded over the past few years a lot more people because of these sites specifically you know ThreadUp, real real poshmark and tradesy um, it's a whole new category that's grown way beyond traditional um traditional resale
0: yeah, I mean, I actually purchase all of my clothes on eBay. I actually really like the feel of 70s t-shirts. Uh, and that's actually been the only place I've been able to find you know, a consistent supply of that.
1: Um, and, uh, did I read correctly here that you you were not only the CTO, but at some point you were the head of HR?
2: Well, kind of by default at, at Tradesy and for a while at, here at Heartbeat, um, both companies basically because I, had, <laughs> I was the person at the company with the most experience.
1: Wow, um, and that's just yeah. how it has to be sometimes.
2: Right, and in a small, scrappy startup, you know, you you really can't afford to hire a dedicated HR person until it, in, well after your Series A. Sure. You know? times it just i mean it just depends on how big you are and how many people you have you know once once you start once you get up over 25ish people it start you know it's time to start thinking about that okay. but in, until then um you just have to have someone on staff that really knows how to do things carefully and legally <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah you know it's interesting to hear you know we we've actually spoken with many uh kind of first-time entrepreneurs, very young entrepreneurs uh, on the podcast so far. So to hear uh, from your experience where you are a co-founder of at least two companies, uh, if not more, and then in addition, you had years of uh, experience at cars.com, which is a major website in the early .com era. I mean, what is that... How you know, what can you speak to uh, about the, the nature of growing responsibilities at the very beginning of a startup?
2: I mean, at any point in the company, even if there's only two or three people in the company, it's important to be, you know, careful and to a certain degree, know the legalities, a few basics of legalities around hiring, especially um early on in one of my you know one of my startups um you know one of the executives who had very very little experience <laughs> asked um you know we, we were hiring a, a developer and he was very young and the first question was how old are you
1: uh,
2: uh, which you can't do you can't ask somebody how old they are um and so you know you you just need to be clear about a few you know a few basics like that things you can can't ask in an interview um you know things like making sure to have you know a very very respectful um tone with each other in the office and in communications um just basics like that
0: So balancing these two things, CTO, uh, I'm a CTO. And so a lot of what I deal with is the cold, logical reality of, you know, ultimately dealing with the bits and the bytes and hardware. Uh, But HR, you know, that's something where you need to be able to interact with other people, something I definitely could not do. How do you balance (laughs) those two things? How do you work with those two parts of your brain?
2: Um, Well, I mean... I basically, before I went into tech, I wanted to be a psychologist so that, you know, that I I have that part of me that likes listening to people and like, you know, and and I feel like I'm good at resolving interpersonal conflict, Um, even though I have no formal training that just kind of comes natural to me. Um, And so, you know, I, I kind of by default you know, I'm the person that people would come to talk to if there's a problem with someone else in the office, anyway. And so for me, it it kind of comes natural, whereas, uh, you know, the, sometimes the technology doesn't come as naturally to me, but I was exposed to technology at a very, very early age in elementary school. And so I've just always been around it and I've known how to program for most of my life. So.
0: What was that early experience with programming like?
2: Um, It's funny. In probably 1979, it was in, I think, third grade on an Apple II Plus. Um, You know, we'd turn the computer on. We didn't have a disk drive or anything. We'd turn it on and type in... You know basic programs out of a book run them and then turn them off and they'd be gone <laughs> so you know just kind of learning from a book with no really no instructions as our teachers you know didn't know anything but just getting that early exposure i was always very comfortable um, you know programming hmm.
0: that that reminds me uh you know we have a phrase here that we use at information uh, build it twice, build it nice. I feel like that experience of the entire memory of the computer being so ephemeral really, you know, puts you in a mindset where you are capable of deleting what you've created and starting from scratch. Oh, Is that yeah. something that you've leveraged?
2: Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, and I'm always telling my team. Excuse me, I, I'm always telling my team that whatever it is. They're probably gonna, after, as soon as it's done, they're gonna realize how it was written incorrectly, and they're probably gonna have to refactor it from scratch. So, you know, I'm build
1: I it twice, build it nice.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, it's I'm I'm somewhere in between agile programming and extreme programming. Um, you know, I don't know exactly where I land on that spectrum, but you know, I, there's a lot of refactoring that happens in all of my companies
1: for the layman uh, over here what is what is extreme programming and what's the difference between extreme and agile
2: uh geez now you're gonna, you're gonna pin me down on this um <laughs> extreme programming really is extreme in that it's paired programming so almost all programming happens with two people sitting like taking turns typing um, and paired programming is great when you get used to it. But before then, it's kind of brutal Um, because developers are kind of used to, you know, (laughs) working on their own to a certain extent. Um, But the other big thing about extreme programming is, you know, what they call merciless refactoring. So just knowing that you're always going to be refactoring your code, you know, sometimes several times if it's a long project, you know, and I don't always, refactor something I've written but you know probably half the time I end up refactoring at some point kind of depending on depends on what it is and you know how important it is and how core to the, the, the business it is
1: Wow so I mean I feel like every time I've ever tried to look over Brain's shoulder while he's programming he swats me away like a fly you know talk to us about the tech scene in LA and what kept you there
2: yeah I mean LA's, LA's great. I really, really like the the tech scene in, in LA. Um, I mean, it, it's kind of all over the map. It, I mean, it's primarily web, of course, but it's a lot of different type of web. You know, there, there are a lot of, um, a lot of agencies for sure. A lot of online agencies um, that do a lot of really great, super high end work. Um, and then, you know, there, there are, hundreds and hundreds of other tech companies, you know, across the full spectrum of, of, you know, primarily web technology and and apps.
0: Yeah. One thing we've noticed uh, talking to investors from L.A. is that I would describe the money in L.A. as much more cautious money, Investors are much less likely to invest in these wild unicorn potential startups. and they're looking more for, like you described with the agencies, you know, service businesses, things with dependable cash flow. Uh, with the exception of Snapchat, I can't really think of any major player. Yeah, um, and I think that's
2: because a lot of the investors in Silicon Valley really come from that, you know, that, hardcore tech background and and it's just not the same yet anyway in in LA and so they're not as willing to take the bigger risks um, because they don't have that background I think that's at least that's what I've what I've seen.
1: Talk to us about heartbeat. Yeah, so
2: um, when I realized that Loy Hall was was not going to happen, I started putting putting feelers out for you know another either another co-founder that needed a tech co-founder or you know a a small you know beginning early phase startup because I, I you know I didn't want to join anything um, that that was already, you know, post uh, Series A. So right. just through a mutual acquaintance, I got introduced to um, uh, Brian Freeman, our our, our CEO, and um, Kate Edwards. Um, she's our, our, our COO. And, um, you know, I really, really understood what they're trying to do with um, ambassador marketing um, and realized that it, you know, it was the right time for that type of product. And I I saw the opportunity um, there. So, you know, I very enthusiastically joined as CTO.
0: Got it. And can you talk just a little bit about, you know, what the principal difference between an ambassador and an influencer is? Um, Really, it's, it's, the core difference is popularity. Somebody
2: who's an influencer, well, two, two things. One, an influencer is doing it for a living, usually, that their job is being an influencer. Um, that's how they make money. And an ambassador, um, it's just a fun thing they do every once in a while. <laughs> mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with making a living.
0: And how much money is there to be made doing it or is it strictly for products and things like that?
2: Um, yeah. Some are for products and some are for a small amount of money, you know, anywhere between say five dollars and, you know, maybe thirty, thirty five dollars on average for a heartbeat ambassador. So they're not gonna get rich doing it, but they have fun doing it and they have fun being involved in promoting brands that, that they like.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I think this is sort of just an awesome way of, you know, getting more involvement in the commercial space and more involvement in the enterprise. You know, this could be the initial foray for somebody to, you know, start a sort of influencer business or something like that.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we definitely we definitely see that. Some of our, you know, ambassadors have become, you know, influencers. Um, but generally, you know, we don't want to work with influencers because they want, you know, they they really don't fit in with our model. And for the most part, when you use influencers for marketing, you have to negotiate with them to get, you know, to nail a price, which we it doesn't work on our model because we have to scale.
0: And so you're looking at, you know, so many posts here. One thing that uh, the influencer marketing world has an advantage of is that it's easier for you to vet. The pieces of content that are created, you know, perhaps you actually get some kind of editorial control, whereas this feels a little more wild, wild west. How do you ensure that the posts that are being made uh, properly represent the brand, and how do you vet that they're accomplishing what they're actually supposed to accomplish?
2: The easiest way to do that is just to look carefully at the ambassador's Instagram account. And it's pretty easy to tell. You can tell very quickly just by looking at the first page of someone's account, the type of post they will do on behalf of your client.
0: Got it. Um, and is that something that humans at your organization are doing? Or is it something that's done through like AI?
2: Yeah, we're, we're, we're still at the point where we're, we're still even though we're over 200,000 ambassadors, we're looking at, um, at least for the people that um, we'll register for a particular campaign, you know, if they, if they haven't posted for us before, then we'll, we'll, we'll look at their account and make sure that, you know, we're not, we're not going to upset the the client too much.
0: Yeah. So you're vetting the accounts. Are you vetting the posts as well?
2: Um, for the most part, yes. Unless it's a, you know, unless we're too buried, for whatever reason, but for the, for the most part, yeah, we're vetting everything.
0: Wow. 200,000. I mean, that's, that's a lot of penetration. Uh, are, what kind of acceptance rate, for instance, if I apply, uh, my Instagram has five followers. Uh, I can't imagine that I qualify. No. Uh, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> um,
2: yeah, I mean, we, we occasionally pretty much the lowest we go is, is, 300, maybe 400 followers, we, we usually our minimums are, are, you know, kind of our the bottom that we like to hit unless it's for a very specific type of campaign that's hard to fill. Um, you know, five 500 followers is kind of the minimum.
0: Now, I know that I can go and buy 500 followers. How do you check that, uh, you know, the, the account actually, you know, meets your uh quality criteria yeah that's
2: actually pretty easy
0: to tell because the engagement
2: numbers will look completely off um for those accounts and they they very consistently do every few months I go back and check to make sure that you know nothing big has changed in the market as far as you know what these accounts um, are doing they're really they're, they're fraudulent accounts, um, but the, the engagement numbers will either be way too low or way too high relative to. Um, and I probably shouldn't say that because now they're going to change their algos. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, have you have you noticed uh, any groups of individuals trying to take advantage of your system, trying to create accounts that exactly fit your criteria, and you know sort of just like propagating applications?
2: Um, thankfully, no. I mean, every once in a while, you know, we have somebody that that tries to get through or does get through with an account that you know is is um, has a lot of fake followers, things like that. But we really don't see that much of that type of activity. Hmm. Uh,
0: and so, how effective is it? I mean, you mentioned uh, some numbers on reach. Uh, How are you measuring effectiveness and how does it compare to other ways people can be advertising?
2: Um, It's really, I think, an important piece of a blended model. That is, it's it's an important piece, but it's not, you know, because nothing in marketing is, you know, nothing in marketing is a silver bullet, really. Um, It's like, on one hand, it is it is difficult with with ambassador marketing to directly measure um, sales because, you know, you can't you don't have clickable tracking links in in Instagram posts. Um, but we do, you know, there are campaigns where we can we are able to, especially if, if clients use a, a promo code, things like that, then we're able to clearly measure lift. Um, but you know, like, like anything in marketing, it, it's, I, I see it as an important part of, of a blended model. So it's one um, important piece to use. I think the most important thing I've learned is just how much better it works than um, influencer marketing. Um, and I also think I think it's fairly comparable to... well, actually, I think it's better as far as measuring than something like television or radio. Um, but it's hard to measure exactly what's going on.
1: If there's anything that you would say to yourself starting out kind of in the tech, you know, early entrepreneurship world, what's a big piece of advice you'd give to yourself?
2: Um, yeah, I think the biggest piece of advice I would give to myself is, um, don't worry so much about, you know, trying to make your boss happy, because a lot of times that'll never happen. Um, you know, believe in yourself, knowing that what you're you're doing is, you know, probably the right thing.
1: Hmm.
2: Um, I think a lot of, especially a lot of tech people, get very wrapped up in you know, worried about, you know, worrying about looking bad, worrying about looking bad to their boss or, 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 um, other people in their company. Um, I think my message would be, you know, trust yourself more.
0: Once again, that was the information podcast. And we sat down with John Hall. If you'd like to learn more about Tradesy, go to Tradesy.com. And if you'd like to learn more about Heartbeat, go to GetHeartbeat.co. We look forward to being with you next week. Stay tuned.